Welcome to the Airspace Advantage podcast. I'm your host today, Doug Berkey. Here at the Airspace Advantage, we speak with leaders in DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here today, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. This week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General Dave Deptula. Hey, it's good to be here. Next, we've got Todd Sledgehammer with us. Great to be here as well. We've also got Anthony Laser Lazarski. Great to be back. Now, Laser and Sledge are Washington experts who we have part of the Rendezvous crew. We've also got General Gus Costello from the Mitchell team. Always good to be on the Mitchell team. And then last but not least, we've got Tim Ryan of our Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. Hey, Doug, thanks. Now, Tim, before we launch into this episode of The Rendezvous, you've been working on an awesome event that I think everybody's going to want to know about. It's our second annual Space Power Security Forum. You and the MySpace team have put together an awesome slate of speakers. You know, we begin the day with Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, and dude, the list of folks we've got booked doesn't let up from start to finish. So walk us through the highlights and let our audience know about what they can expect when they attend. Absolutely. This is going to be another amazing event. We're going to top last year's, as you said, it's our second annual. We've got three keynotes and three panels this year. Uh, Keynotes include, we're going to get kicked off, as you said, the Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, is going to kick off the day in the event at 9 o'clock in the morning. We've got Dr. Derek Tournier, the Director of SDA, to come and speak in the afternoon at lunch. And we're going to wrap up a keynote with Dr. Lisa Costa, the CTI for the Space Force, we're really excited to be able to see what she has to say. And then we've got three amazing panels to be able to lay out where we're going to talk things from protect and defending assets in space and what does that look like. We've got General Miller from Space Command come talk on that, as well as General Chilton. We've got some industry on that. We're going to discuss how space's role in defending North America within missile warning. We've got experts like General Burt sitting on that, as well as industry partners. And finally, we're going to talk about a vision for proliferated orbits and small satellites. It's definitely where the Space Force is going. We've seen that. And so we want to sit down, have a panel on that. And we've got General Sheba from SSC and Colonel Eric Felt from Secretary Calvelli's office to be able to sit on that. So it's going to be a real well-rounded out day of conversation. We're really excited about it. If anybody wants any additional information, they can go right to our website. Registration is still open. Look for the Space Power Security Forum link. It's right there on the front. This is free. So please come out and also enjoy the very great plated lunch that we're going to be able to provide during Dr. Tournier's discussion. I know you're really proud of that apple pie. So, (laughs) General Deptula, to kick things off, you were asked to testify before the Defense Committee of the UK's Parliament about the Royal Air Force's aviation procurement plan. That's pretty unusual that kind of request coming across the pond. Give us some background, what it was like to do that testimony. You've testified a lot before Congress, but UK Parliament, that's a new experience. And what priorities are they considering? First, it really was an honor and a privilege to be invited to testify and answer their questions. And I tell you, Doug, that it was very much like a U.S. Congressional Committee hearing where there were brief introductions and then questions by uh, members of the committee. In a nutshell, what they were interested in 
were air power lessons to date from Ukraine, thoughts on continued allied support to Ukraine, and then the capacity challenges that the United Kingdom faces in light of its growing threats. Now, I'll go through each one of these as quickly as possible. In the first instance, I made the point that combat actions in Ukraine are really exposing the absolute vital importance of air power. Specifically, that Ukraine is a stark demonstration of the consequences of not securing air superiority and how, as a result, the conflicts dissolved into a war of attrition that resembles the horrors of World War I. And then I highlighted six key gaps in both U.S. and U.K. air power. So summarizing, here they are. Number one, a capacity gap in terms of sufficient numbers of combat air forces to meet the needs of our respective defense strategies. Here's where the Russian invasion of Ukraine should be a wake-up call to rebuild our respective air forces. Two, a readiness gap in levels of realistic training necessary to achieve proficiency and maintain currency to fully exploit the capabilities of our air forces. Three, a serious munitions gap. Four, a gap in sufficient production capacity for not just munitions, but aircraft as well. Five, the importance of logistics. And six, finally, the vital importance of command and control. Now, on the continued allied support to Ukraine side, I made the point that neither time nor manpower is on Kyiv's side. As a smaller nation, 44 million versus Russia's 144 million, Ukraine can't support a ground war of attrition indefinitely. Putin will win that fight, regardless of how incompetent his military leadership is. It's just simple math. But air power is the one asymmetric advantage that can break this stalemate. Appropriate air power of sufficient capacity and capability could fundamentally give Ukraine an advantage over the Russians, and it must be provided to Ukraine as soon as possible. And by that I mean with both manned fighters as well as unmanned aircraft like the MQ-9, which, by the way, we have over 60 MQ-9s in crates collecting dust in California not being used by any U.S. government agency, and they ought to be provided to Ukraine in response to the Russians knocking down our uh, one MQ-9 in international airspace. Now, the third piece that they asked me about was a capacity challenge faced by the Royal Air Force, and I offered that at present it's too small, with too little depth, and too few resources to meet the demands of the growing challenges that the United Kingdom faces. Today, it's operating at full tempo, and while Royal Air Force leadership have the right sight picture, they must be empowered and resourced for success uh, in a world of growing threats. Far too much risk was taken from a capacity perspective from the RAF since the end of the Cold War. Just to put things in perspective, it went from, the Royal Air Force went from 36 operational combat squadrons in Operation Granby, that's their name for Desert Storm in 1991, to nine today. I'll do the math for you. The Royal Air Force is only 25% the size it was in 1991, when today the threats it faces are more and greater in terms of both capability and capacity. Now, these cuts were implemented because leaders in past eras 
assumed defense was assured. This is no longer a safe assumption, and the United Kingdom's not alone in this situation. It's an issue confronting most Western nations, including the United States. So that's a quick summary, but my entire testimony is posted on the Mitchell Institute website, and I'd encourage folks to take a listen. Uh, sir, I really appreciate it. And to your point about size, if you really also want to look at it, just look at the percentage of fighters that are in the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight with Spitfires and Hurricanes. It's a bit too big of a percentage when you look at the overall RAF fighter capacity. So there you go. Okay, Laser and Sledge, let's turn to you. What's the latest when it comes to Washington and defense? Last time when we talked to you, we were on the eve of the FY24 budget release heading to Capitol Hill. And thus far, what are the macro observations when it comes to the top line for defense and key programs? And how do you think it's all playing out? Just looking from a congressional point of view, and I think as everyone listening would expect, the reaction to the budget has been mixed. And mostly, I would say, across party lines, there's a disagreement between defense and non-defense spending. And you looked at the non-defense spending over twice the rate of defense. And then they're looking at 3.2%, and that has some on the Democratic side that defense even went up 3.2%. But overall, I think that from a defense hawk point of view, they feel that the budget's too low. It makes bad assumptions about inflation which they're saying is going to be 4.3% this year, going down to 2.4, which we're sitting at 6. Increased cost of fuel. And then there's a fight between the defense hawks and deficit hawks. We've talked about that before, the projected deficit 24, and then us reaching the debt ceiling. But as you really look down, as uh, the defense committees are doing a good job, they're really doing a good job questioning the DOD officials that have been coming up to include Air Force. There's quite a good discussion on the unfunded priority list that just came out. Some don't agree with those priorities. But as I listen to the hearings, there's an agreement that China's the main threat, threat posed by Russia. There's concerns about outsourcing the supply chain. And I think it's following on what General Deptula said, concerns about our defense industrial base. So as they all look to the future, they just see a complex national security environment as the challenges around the globe continue to grow and including our own hemisphere. So the crux of the issue, bottom line, is they understand what the threats are, but they have to figure out how are they going to mitigate these threats. And that's what Congress is trying to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. My perspective, the kind of macro observations there are, unfortunately, this is a status quo defense budget. Air Force is still chronically under-resourced. And I know General Deptool has made this argument. When you peel back the blue pass-through, you take away the $30 billion for the Space Force. The Air Force is still funded less than the Army and the Navy, once again, for the, what, 33rd year in a row? 31. 31, okay. So I, I think that that is definitely a takeaway because especially as, as China is the pacing threat, the Air Force is under-resourced for the strategy that they're required to accomplish the mission in the Pacific. But to pull on the unfunded priority list there that, that Laser mentioned earlier, I, I thought it was unique almost across the board. Every UPL had a request in there. There, there was a lot for MILCON and facilities maintenance, which was a traditional pay, bill payer. But there was a lot on domain awareness whether that be the commander of NORTHCOM, whether that be the Air Force trying to accelerate the E-7, and lots of unfunded priorities related to command and control and the network. So that, to me, was a key observation there. The last thing I will say, though, is I was just glad to see that nuclear modernization is remaining on track. There are going to be some delays there, the B-21 first flight delayed, some issues with the Sentinel supply chain there. But by and large, all the upgrades to the nuclear triad are on track, and I think that's foundational for our national security. So any other issues you should be tracking? We've started to see the annual parade of defense leaders testifying before the various committees. 
what major trends there? I'll defer to Laser on some of the defense oversight mechanics, but the one thing that I want to talk about here, and this really isn't a trend, but I think this is the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. Maybe that was a poor analogy there, but we really need to be looking at the debt ceiling. We're currently about $800 billion short of our $34.1 trillion, with a T, debt limit. The Treasury Department's taking extraordinary measures. We're going to hit that debt limit, the ceiling, sometime late June through August. So it is a crisis that's going to, I think, come to a head over the summer. Republicans in the House, in particular, the chairman of the Budget Committee, Representative Arrington from Texas, still views this. I mean, it would be catastrophic in the light of the banking failures and us defaulting on any of our national debts. They, the Republicans in the House still see this as a perfect time to extract cuts from non-defense discretionary spending. And I think they're going to leverage that. What they're looking for right now is about $130 billion in non-defense discretionary cuts. They want to hold the top line spending to 1% growth for the next 10 years, which is going to make it problematic as it doesn't even keep up with inflation. And their ultimate goal is to achieve a balanced budget in 10 years, which again, you're not going to be able to achieve that with spending cuts alone. You've got to look at all of the mandatory spending programs out there. You're going to have to look at opportunities for additional revenue and revisit some of the tax cuts that are set to expire here in the coming year. I think really to put it in focus, the ranking member of the House Appropriations Committee, Congresswoman DeLauro from Connecticut, sent a letter to all the departments of the federal government asking for their impact of the cuts that the Republicans are proposing there. And it's really grim. Look across the board, whether that be the FAA having to close about a third of the small airports in the United States, Department of Transportation not doing a lot of the train inspections that they would. Those are just things with the recent near collisions at airports and the derailing that we've seen. Those are the kind of things I think that jump out and get your attention. And then the last thing I'll say there is President Biden and Speaker McCarthy haven't spoken on the debt ceiling since February. President Biden's position has been, show me your budget. That's probably not going to happen until the House passes a budget resolution sometime in mid-May, which again puts it right up against the debt ceiling deadline there. I haven't had a chance to read the letter in full yet, but apparently this morning a letter was published that Speaker McCarthy sent over to the president basically saying, you're on the clock, you need to set the date, we need to start moving forward. I think it's safe to say that it's going to take some type of a deadline to be a forcing function for Congress to do that. Most defense experts on the Hill think that the $842 billion request is too low for our national security strategy. So something's got to give. Everything that Sledge said is 100% true. 52% of what we spend out of the overall budget is entitlements. And unless you start looking at that, you're not going to try to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish with the balanced budget. Getting into the budget resolution, they're supposed to have it done try by the 15th. They're not going to... They're not going to make that. And I don't even know if they'll get a budget resolution based on the two differences between House and Senate with looking at an FY22 top line cap and then essentially what I think is going to be supporting the president's budget as it goes through. Other issues, we're hearing questions. I'm reading this. We're hearing questions on force structure, care of service members. But the other things that are out there that are directly impacting defense is there, as I think everybody's seeing going through the Senate side right now, repeal of the authorizations for use of military force at UMF, and they're just getting rid of the 1991 and 2002 authorizations while still keeping the authorization, the 2001, which we put in after 9-11. 
But I expect those both to pass the House and the Senate. Everyone's seen the discussion on COVID. We talked about Spectrum last time that we had a podcast, and that continues. And again, it ended on March 9th. The Spectrum Auction Authority ended. They're trying to get that back. Senator Rounds has really been leading the charge to ensure that DOD gets a say on Spectrum Authority auctions to make sure there's no impacts to national security. And it looks like if they can get some agreement, it'll get extended through September. But the other issues, semi conductors trying to onshore the TikTok national security ban that continued discussion on climate change, border fentanyl, and PFAS impacting all our either former military facilities or current military facilities and the cleanup, which is going to impact budget. And then they're trying to work on the energy costs and then the FAA bill. So, I mean, there is no shortage of issues to work on. Of course, they're going into recess after the end of this week. And never a slow day in Washington. So what about the rest of the group? Thoughts on the FY24 budget request? General Deptula, let's start with you. Doug, as I I wrote in my most recent op-ed in Forbes, Secretary Kendall's first budget, built entirely under his direction, does a really fine job of underwriting necessary Air Force and Space Force capabilities. That said, the demands on the Air Force still far exceed the resources that it's allocated. Bottom line is today, it simply does not have the capacity to execute the nation's defense strategy. So if the Department of the Air Force's plans are gonna have any chance for success, it's continued underfunding has to be reversed. Now, Sledge mentioned it earlier, but the 24 budget is the 31st year in a row that the Air Force budget is less than that of the Army or the Navy. And that, quite frankly, and here's some straight talk, is why the Air Force is the oldest and the smallest it's ever been in history. And it's because of this continued underfunding that the Air Force is being forced to retire more aircraft in FY24 than they're acquiring. We're acquiring less than 100 airplanes, but we're retiring over 300 airplanes. Now, No mission area can tolerate this. There's a continued mission gap in fighters, GMTI, and airborne command and control, and they're not getting better fast enough. Okay, the fighter buy, while in 24, is getting better at 72 a year, it needs to improve further to arrest the force-structured death spiral that the Air Force is currently experiencing. Now, One of the operational imperatives that the Air Force has initiated to correct that is embracing the notion of collaborative combat aircraft. I hosted one of our best seen to date Aerospace Nation webinars yesterday with key Air Force leadership in operations, acquisition, science, technology, and test that describe the ambitious plans the Air Force is developing for collaborative combat aircraft, as well as the next generation air dominance family of systems, and it's very impressive. The bottom line is the Air Force ought to be commended for programming a force in FY24 that will deliver capabilities needed for future fights. It must now make an equally effective case to build the capacity necessary to win those future fights. So Air Force leaders have the right side picture, but they need more resources to manifest it. And as long as the Army and the Navy are allowed to buy missiles 
that cost over $60 million a shot. The Department of Defense has not made the hard choices it needs to make to rebuild our ever-vanishing Air Force. General Costello, how about you? Uh, General Deptula pretty much shacked that one. I mean, what strikes me is this whole, what, anytime they say we're going to divest to invest, the, just the numbers that were stated there show how ridiculous that is because I think we're losing 310 airplanes and gaining maybe 72 fighters. So think of it like this. If you have to maintain a fleet of cars, but you have to get rid of four used cars to bring on one new car, how can you maintain the fleet of cars? It's impossible, right? You need investment above and beyond to it to bring on the volume the capacity of fighters bombers tankers everything that's needed to address the global demands far and above just using funds generated by divesting aircraft and because the global demands don't allow it and we'll get to that i think later on in the podcast but it just strikes me divest to invest if air force leaders keep talking about that we have to call them out because it's a failed approach on this we need the funding to the ca thing i think it's fantastic that the u.s has taken the lead and thrown requirements out there a vision out there that can create collaborative combat aircraft to go out there and first off create air superiority and against the highest end threats that our nation faces here's my only question though if we do aspire to build a thousand of those things where's that money coming from because by the way if you're going to go out there and you're going to knock down airplanes over the straits of taiwan and all that i want to know that they're not clearly they need to be very capable and they're not they're going to cost a little bit more than a cessna does okay and so where is that money coming from is it coming from the other coffers in the air force I, where there's no money, as we've already talked about. And so this just shows you that we need, it's a good strategy, but we have to resource the strategy. And that means appealing for what General Deptula talked about, which is an Air Force that's relevant, not only in, in its terms of its capability, but its capacity. One last thing, and that is my concerns about the budget, and I, it is a step in the right direction, by the way, but we need a lot more steps. We need years of steps in this direction, if you will. But my concern, though, is in some other things, such as O&M uh, operations and maintenance funding, especially maintenance on, the, uh, on that side of the house to sustain the fleet that we have to maintain, especially in light of the construct of agile combat employment and doing uh, generating air power from not just home stations or deployments locations, but a diverse set of locations. What's the bill to maintenance on this? And then how are we going to resource that? And then also one thing that's got my attention, it's had my attention since I was in the building, and that is pilot production. We have a big pilot shortfall now, and I don't know if the service is aggressively getting after that to the extent that they can. Those are just some initial thoughts on the budget. No, I really appreciate that. Now, Tim, where does the Space Force stand in this year's submission? So the Space Force, again, going into year four, on the budget, it clearly shows that they are continuing to move in the direction of taking the space domain from the benign environment that has been built for decades and moving it into an actual warfighting domain. Space Development Agency had a big bump up to be able to make sure that the transport layer, which is their data relay, and the tracking layer, which is their missile warning and tracking capability, gets fully developed and launched so that they can start to be able to become the backbone of the JADC2 concept that is out there as they continue to be, develop that. This budget also gets into one of General Saltzman's big priorities, which is getting the training and testing deficit that clearly has been in the Space Force for as long as I've been around. 
We've needed new simulators and new trainers to be able to prepare for the high-intensity fight. That's something that General Bratton at, at Starcom, he's come and, and spoke to us here at Mitchell about that. This year, they've got that developed in, into the budget to be able to start to lay out the way ahead of that. As well as having live fire events, think of satellite jamming abilities, the ability to be able to validate tactics. These are things that the Space Force forever has not had the ability to be able to do. We have tactics that are developed, but unlike on the air side where you just go out to Vegas and you take aircraft that you have in the inventory and you go and you can validate that tactic, we don't have spare extra satellites that that you can do that on. And, And So the development of a test range to be able to get after that is also in this budget. Finally, one of the more interestingly asks that are in there is, and Gerald Deptula, you alluded to that, is... There's money in there to start to develop the payloads to detect and tracking moving ground targets. The JSTARS mission, it's retiring this year. So that's going to drive down that capability. And so the Space Force is starting to try to fill that void. The drive is to be able to develop and field those sensor payloads by the end of 2024. Clearly aggressive. We'll see how that falls out. And of course, the piece that got a lot of news was in the rollout, the discussion led to both a, quote, offensive and defensive space capability. That's absolutely where we need to be. Be able to start to, to develop that, being able to just talk about that is, is an incredible step. But we see that in, in this budget as well. And the Secretary has laid out that a lot of that is in the classified realm. Another piece to not lose sight of in the Space Force budget when we talk about we don't have necessarily a pass-through, but understand that JTAGS is coming over from the Army this year. Much like the bump-up that is we've seen in the Space Force budget in the past, there's $15 million that is just for the transfer of the JTAGS from the Army into the Space Force. So understand that those billets, those people, and that money is also rolled into the top line. Yeah, and that's important because people think of it as growth, and it's not. It's just absorption, and it's important not to conflate the two. So let's do a quick hit here, but just let's go around the table fast. If each one of you could offer advice to key defense committees and members about what they should address as they look at the submission hearings and as they work billing and all that, what would it be? General Gostella, let's start with you. The nature of the fight that our nation faces has changed significantly. And I think the Congress is aware of that and tracking that. But the hardest part here is not what to buy. It's what to stop buying. It's what to buy less of. It's what to take risk in. And that's the part that I think the committees would benefit from that discussion. And I would argue, I'd give a couple things right up front. Number one, what can you get rid of that you can buy back quickly? It's certainly not air power. It's certainly not sea power. It's called a large standing army. You can reduce the size of the end strength of the army and you can also buy it back very quickly because the training involved is much less and much different than buying back an air force. That's the place to go for money. And secondly, as mentioned by General Deptula, is why are we buying $60 million surface to surface missiles? For what purpose and what's that gonna do for us? And so there's a lot better ways to spend money within that big budget that the DOD has. And I think that's where we should educate the Congress if we, if at all possible, and maybe allow those to decisions to start to, to come to the forefront. Yeah, let me jump in there real quickly. Here's a breaking item. Just hit my in container at 1244 from breaking defense. Navy seeks $3.6 billion over five years for 64 hypersonic conventional prompt strike rounds. Folks, that's $56.25 million each. 
further proved that the movie Idiocracy was a predictive documentary and not satire. And the Army's doing the same thing. Let's get real, DOD. Are you serious about the future or not? Okay, back to your question, Doug. First thing I do is ask the Air Force to clearly identify the capacity challenges it faces. Give it the same direction to explain what it needs to actually execute the current national defense strategy independent of any budget constraints. Then pull the thread on what we saw happen at Kadena. Fighters getting so old, there's simply no way to continue to maintain them or maintain the pilot training pipeline to do so either. So without adequate funding to rebuild its geriatric force, that consequence is going to spread to other units because every mission area is stressed. Then I'd ask the COCOMs to highlight the challenges that they face getting enough capacity from the Air Force. Regarding the Space Force, I applaud General Saltzman for being direct about the notion of space as a contested domain and his success in increasing Space Force funding. Keep it up. I agree with your assessment from the Space Force and what General Saltzman got right. I think that two things that that they have to start to have the conversation, real conversation about, is not necessarily what they need to buy, but the right-sizing of the force and the development of a Space National Guard. We've talked about this. We've written about this. We've got to have the conversation. General Saltzman has testified saying he cannot afford to not have those capabilities in the Space Force. This is not the time to go chase some novel new idea that has been untested of how you're going to do part-time, full-time, where people are going to go. The other side that they need to look at is right-sizing the force. So the Space Force was developed to be small, agile, and quick, if you will. But now as we see that it goes into its fourth year, there's a couple of things that are really coming to light. We just had the Space Component Commander for U.S. CENTCOM here the other day. He's a colonel. His peers that he's sitting around the table with are two and three stars in the other services. That mismatch, while it's working now as they get it off the ground, that's not a sustainable way ahead. So they've got to be able to line that up. As you start to talk about the different pieces that are in R&D right now, when those come into ops acceptance, you have to think now of the people that you're going to need to operate those things. As well as, and I know that Congress likes to push back on the service when they come forward with needs of This is going to be an additional bureaucracy, but the service and the combatant command staffs are anemic. They do not have enough people just to do the basics of being able to keep a service just above water. So we've got to be able to fill those in a strategic way of what does the service actually need to be able to get things done. But you cannot continue to be able to have these small anemic staffs that can't even get after a budget cycle or be able to keep operations going. Yeah, at the risk of beating a dead horse further, I just, there's two things, and they've been hit on, readiness and capacity. Regarding capacity, at some point, we've got to stop admiring problems and start buying stuff, plain and simple. And then the second one there, readiness. Let's keep in mind that nothing that this Congress does, well, I shouldn't say nothing, almost nothing that this Congress does, will not really be available to war fighters for at least three years, probably for longer than that. So that puts us out into 2027. And those of you that are tracking what's going on in the Indo-Pacific realize that's a significant date. We need to be ready to fight tonight. And so I I would hope that Congress is looking through the 24 budget requests. They authorize and appropriate resources to restore readiness. 
that includes the equipment, weapons, training, and sustainment necessary for us to deter and if deterrence fails, prevail. Just real quick to finish it up, and everyone said it, they need to address the threats, they need to address the strategy, and then the assets, and then the other piece of that is risk, and all of you talked about it. We don't have the force structure, any force structure, we know we're all budget constrained, so whatever the force structure, whatever the assets we have, both near-term and long-term, is accepting risk, and they need to accept, explain how we're meeting the strategy and how we're accepting risk. So I want to flip this question, and... If we were to talk to Air Force and Space Force leaders and provide advice about how they prepare for testimony, what would that advice look like? Sledge and Laser, you both worked on the Hill, and you've got time in uniform as well. You've seen both sides of the coin here. And what are your thoughts on this? What are the key substance points they should get across? What style as well? So I had written a couple of things down. I'm going to start with my last bullet that I had written down. And the first thing is stay out of politics and stay out of the budget because neither DOD or the president appropriate funding funding Congress does. So again, what like we said on the last little piece, it's threat, it's strategy and assets. And a quote by George Washington, to be prepared for war is the most effectual means for preserving the peace. So we need to, they need to go ahead and explain, hey, here are the threats that we see near-term, long-term. Here's the strategies, the national security, national defense strategies we have. And then here's how we're meeting it. But, and again, we all know that everybody has to support the president's budget and you're out there testifying, but getting into the risks, yes, you can support the president's budget, but you can explain what type of risks that are being assumed or incorporated into that the force structure that we have. I would be honest without throwing anybody under the bus. Had you come up with the planned budget in that force structure? And then again, explaining the risk without disagreeing with the budget. And then provide specifics, See, not to go into a lot of detail, but they need to, again, understand how we come up with the size of the force structure, both today and the future, impacts of changes onto that force structure, what future requirements we're trying to meet, and then how are the timelines? We talked about, oh, we're going to retire 300 aircraft, we're going to bring 72, but we've got a long-term goal. How do we meet that long-term goal if we never actually buy new aircraft? If I were to offer advice to the leaders before they testified, I, I guess I would make mine a little bit more personal. The first thing I would say is be prepared to tolerate some stupid questions. Don't think Guam is going to capsize, but you never know if that might be brought up. So don't lose your cool when you hear something stupid. The second thing that I would say is the budget request is a reflection of your priorities. And I think that there was, and Laser can probably back me up on this, there was nothing more frustrating in being a congressional staffer and in one legislative cycle getting a story from the Air Force and then the next legislative cycle getting a story that was 180 degrees out. And it's really, what is it? So I guess my advice there would be to have a story that basically is based in strategy and then stick to that strategy. And that's why I think that the secretary's operational imperatives are so important. They provide a unifying theory and provide a framework for a very coherent and focused message. And I think that the Department of the Air Force needs to stick to that now and in the future. I think if we look at the next major subject right here, it's got to be Ukraine and the Russia fight. The spring offensive is kicking off. The news reports suggest it's a serious meat grinder. And like General Deptula said, Ukrainian forces are putting up a great fight in places like Bakhmut, but it's a numbers game, and Putin's going to win that war of attrition. They just got a bigger base to pull from with population and resources and everything. You also look at the fact that 
Putin's got unique powers to compel people to serve. He's an authoritarian. And I was reading the Wall Street Journal this weekend, and they published an article that the Ukrainians are having a hard time filling their ranks out. They had a lot of the volunteers over the last year, but chewed through those people. And now it's trying to compel the next set of folks that didn't volunteer this first year. That's a harder argument. And so it's going to get really hard. It's a big reason why Mitchell has been arguing for air power to try to break the logjam here. But if you were looking at this equation right now, what advice would you give the coalition supporting Ukraine to ensure Russian forces are held at bay? How do we break out of this attrition equation? And how do we get to victory as fast as possible? And I think we've both talked about it a fair amount, but I really want to dig into this. It's very important that people think about this. So General Costello, let's kick it off with you. One thing I've noticed since the beginning of the campaign is what was what today is considered to be off limits in terms of what we do for Ukraine. Suddenly tomorrow it becomes something very real and we actually do it. And we've seen that every step of the way. It's continuing to get worse. It's going to get worse there before it gets better. And so I think we need to stay ahead of that. I think we do need a strategy to provide them air power. I think we need a short-term strategy to give them airplanes they can use today. I think we also need a longer-term strategy to give them credible air force that they can use to really drive cost imposition to the Russians. And that could be cost imposition on the battlefields of Ukraine. It could be cost imposition on things across the border. Because right now, while we don't think attacking very much across the Russian border is the right thing to do, things will get a lot worse. And eventually that will be back on the table for the Ukrainians. And so how do we appropriately equip them? I think we need a short-term strategy and a long-term strategy. And it centers on air power. Because only, as General Deptool said up front, had air power been employed properly by the Russians, this maybe this campaign would have ended. But it wasn't. And so now what we face is a war of attrition where air power can absolutely make a difference. It can really impose costs on the fielded Russian forces if the Ukrainians have it and it's employed properly. And so I just think we need to stay ahead. And one last point, I think we also need to stay ahead of the nuclear escalation. Putin has already done several things. We talked about on the last podcast where he mentioned potentially backing out of the START treaties. He recently mentioned the potential for deployment of nuclear weapons in Belarus. We can't just sit there and wait and see what what he does next. I think we need to think about the nuclear escalation in advance. So that will help counter what he's doing and let him know that NATO and the U.S. mean business when it comes to this conflict. Over. I really appreciate that. Tim, let's take it to the space domain. Obviously, we heard a lot about space power's role supporting Ukraine up front, but how has that played out? Are there capabilities we can help provide to continue that advantage? I think that it's really been interesting watch from a space perspective. Again, from what the government provides, think of what the Space Force provides. Of course, GPS, they're utilizing that. That's been attacked on both sides because the GPS does give a advantage to them. But more interestingly, I think is how it's really changed the way that we look at commercial provided satellite capability. When you look at commercial satellite communications. So think of Starlink. Look at what Starlink has been able to do and how it has enabled the Ukrainians to not only be able to keep, but actually maintain a decision advantage over the Russians as far as troop speed and synchronization of their movements. That has been there. That has been there for them the entire time. I think if you look at the way that they have utilized commercial imagery to be able to provide both from a reconnaissance perspective, an intelligence targeting, battle damage assessment, everything that we would utilize that General Deptuli utilized over in the AOC as far as 
imagery goes, that's what they're doing, and they're getting it via commercial assets. It's a total game changer as far as the way that we look at that. And I think that the United States has actually started to look at, as we go forward, what is the way that we will take on commercial and be able to utilize that, and what does that look like, and what lessons can be learned from that? So sledge and laser, does Hill need to do more in this equation so that Ukraine doesn't end up bleeding out too much and losing in the long run? Yeah, absolutely. They need to do more. And I, I've heard the frustrations out there. I mean, overall, they continue to support Ukraine. It's they continue to have an open debate, which is healthy, but I think that's what's helping continue the support. And we've discussed before, it's not open-ended or endless, which get into what we were just discussing is that we know that getting equipment out there takes time. We know training gets time, which means we need to start now. And the other frustrating thing is what Congress, I don't think, understands. I don't think it's been communicated what is the short and long-term plan for Ukraine? Because then that will educate Congress of what's the assets we need to have in there. Because right now it just appears that we're just chasing request after request, in a sense, fighting the nearest alligator where the approach needs to be more long-term of what are the assets, what's the funding, and what's the training to achieve the end state. And the end state is to have Ukraine get it back its territory. Laser, you, you hit on the key point there. What's the end state? So what's Congress going to do if we don't know what the end state? What does victory look like? What is post-war support? Are, are we going to, is there going to be a Marshall Plan for Ukraine? Until the Congress works with the administration and shapes what our end state or desired end state looks like in Ukraine, it's going to be impossible to develop a coherent strategy. You know, before we can discuss means, we've got to have the ways, ends, means discussion first. Uh, that's a really good point. So Xi Jinping and Putin recently met for a series of talks here. This is a big deal on many levels. Not only is this relationship what's allowed Russia to sustain its fight in Ukraine, but this partnership is going to underpin a lot of other moves we see around the globe. And I'd like to hear from everybody what they think about this growing partnership and how the U.S. should respond. Let me jump in here, Doug. And first and foremost, make the point that it's clear Russia is increasingly dependent on China economically, militarily, and diplomatically, the relationship is really close. China will enjoy access to Russian energy stores, raw materials, and a partner in the diplomatic community. Russia also holds a useful geographic position in the globe that can expand China's base of operations and influence. Now, this is very useful. On the flip side, Russia has drawbacks. I'm sure Xi Jinping would have preferred that Russia not get stuck in the Ukrainian quagmire because it's clearly not helped the global economy and it's put China in a bit of an awkward position when it comes to its diplomatic narrative. But if you add the nations that China has cultivated through its Belt and Road Initiative, plus add in Russia, that's a diplomatic, economic, and military mass that we simply can't ignore. So we need to respond to this with a whole-of-government approach, military, economic, diplomatic, and with information, which, by the way, we're in serious risk of losing that fight, the information fight, from a strategic communications perspective. We've got to fix that. But we just can't assume the global community will follow us. There's a competition, and we need to get real about that race. John Costello? 
I think General Tula said it really well, and I, I'm not going to try to add too much to that, except I think everything he said is correct. I think we should basically build on the one advantage that we have, and that is we have allies and partners, liberal democracies around the world that can help us in deterring China's support to Russia in this case, and through hurting China, the one way that hurts them most, and that's economically, and denying China a lot of the markets that they seek. And it starts with the information campaign that General Deptula mentioned. It starts starts with sharing intelligence with our allies and partners that really shows what China is doing and breaking down some of the classifications so we can really show them the true threat that country poses both globally, but also if they were to continue to support Russians. I think it's a very grave situation if they were to partner up and we need to do everything we can to limit that effectiveness of that. I agree with both General Deptula and General Gastello on that. Don't lose sight, both China and Russia view space as a warfighting domain. They realize how important it is to U.S. military operations and capabilities. They continue to have robust capabilities to find, target, and attack things on orbit. So what we need to be able to do, to your point, General Deptula, is we need to be able to identify those, which we can on orbit, of what their actions that they're doing, what are they doing that is is needs to be called out in the global environment and be able to control that narrative and not allow China and Russia in particular to be able to link up and try to control a narrative of the way that they see space should be operated globally. So Sledge and Laser, do you think the Hill is tracking this sufficiently and especially with this whole government solution approach? From being aware, absolutely. From how to execute on a whole of government approach, no, because again, I don't think they have a long-term plan on how to engage with both China and Russia. But the good thing is at least they understand the threat, they agree on the threat. Now they have to figure out how to address the threat. We've been inconsistent in our engagement and our messaging as a country. We've also been absent in some areas that have allowed both China and Russia to expand their influence. I agree with everything that's been said. The enemy of your enemy is your friend. I I think this China-Russia relationship is a relationship of convenience driven on, as we said, energy needs, as well as China wanting to prove itself that they can be a broker of peace, they're a world power, and expand their influence across the board. But I do expect China's going to extract concessions. I, I think they're the big brother in the relationship, and Russia is right now just working with China. But the focus is against the United States. Yeah, and I think that's the frustrating part. There's seemingly a lack of whole of a government solution to the problem here. One critique, it seems like our overall foreign policy is very reactionary and misprioritized. That said, I would really like to know what Xi and Putin discuss in private, or more importantly, what Xi says to Putin in private. And if Russia's not careful, they need to remember that China has some historical territorial ambitions inside of the Russian landmass, in particular east of the Ural Mountains. So... This dependency that General Deptula mentioned earlier there could really come back to haunt the Russians. Okay, I've been working on a report looking at the health of the Air Force's fighter inventory and bottom line up front, it's bad. We saw this happen at Kadena last fall and we talked about it this episode a lot with F-15Cs and Ds retiring with that direct replacement. And that's going to happen in a lot more places if we don't boost fighter production fast. And look, a lot of states are going to be impacted by this. Just look at the map and where you see F-15Cs and Ds and F-16s that were built in the mid-80s. It's a lot of states affected. So... And I, I want to, we're going to do a focused episode on this later on, but I want to hit this fast. And General Deptula, how did we get to such a bad place and so quickly? In a nutshell, during the Reagan era, we dramatically modernized our fighter force. 
we purchased a huge amount of capacity in a concentrated period. Now, in the 90s, the Air Force built a plan to recapitalize these aircraft in the early 2000s with F-22s and F-35s. But then the era of mass distraction intervened. Counterinsurgency became the coin of the realm, and the Army found a hook to build its force structure for the near-term exigencies of COIN at the cost of preparedness for the greater threats of China and Russia. In reality, terrorism was never an existential threat, but ground-centric leadership in the Pentagon captured then-Secretary of Defense Bob Gates emotionally, and he willingly cut the F-22 at less than half the military requirement And then he slow-rolled F-35 procurement by stating that China was not really a threat and that F-22s were not necessary in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, Mr. Secretary, neither were attack submarines, but we didn't cut those in half. Legacy Air Force inventory is now out of life, and it's also not very combat-relevant against modern threats. It's almost an impossible situation to dig out of, but we're here and we need to solve it. No form of joint power projection is viable without the air superiority strike and electronic attack that Air Force fighters bring to the table. Navy and Marine Corps have fighters, but those aircraft, as well as Army aviation, have organic service-based assignments of fleet defense and the Marine Air Ground Task, Task Force and their corps before the combatant commands joint plans gain access to these service-focused aircraft. The Air Force, on the other hand, uses all of their forces to accomplish joint force objectives, not just some of their aircraft, as is the case with the Army, Navy, and Marine aviation. That's a huge point, sir. So, General Guastella, you were looking at this problem every day as the A3 and you're trying to meet these COCOM requirements, and the force structure kept going down. Can you talk to us what that role was like in in trying to spread this really small force super thin? The problem is big and getting bigger in terms of the demands on the Air Force and our inability to satisfy those demands. The Air Force doesn't need to get up here and say we need to be larger. Every COCOM is saying the same thing if we just listen to them. If we just listen to the requirements from the combatant commands, they are all singing the same thing. We need air power. You just think about what the demands on the fleet were. We need a deterrent posture in the Indo-PACOM. It has to actually be an increasing deterrent posture in Indo-PACOM. We're going the other direction by pulling F-15s out of Kadena with nothing to backfill them. We have an ongoing war, because no one's checked. We have an ongoing conflict in the Middle East where people are dying. I think we're flowing A-10s to the Middle East to help the lack of air power that already exists there. Why? Because we just don't have anything else out to provide. Then you overlay the deterrent posture that we need in NATO, which we have to, we can't ignore the forces on the eastern side of NATO and the importance of air power there. And then, oh, let's not forget about the homeland. Didn't we just have, use the Air Force to shoot down balloons? That's that same Air Force that's going to shoot down balloons 
balloons. It's going to defend our national capital region and other big cities against cruise missiles and, and any other threats. That also has been neglected. So when you look at air power's demands, it's not the Air Force that's asking for it. It's everybody else in addition to the Air Force. And so it's a very significant problem. It's going to get worse if we divest to invest without adding additional funds to the Air Force. It's just going to get worse. None of those requirements around the globe are going away anytime soon. And the Air Force is the solution. Notice last point, and that is the Middle East does not have a request for hundreds of thousands of ground forces. No, they request air power because that's what's deterring Russian aggression into eastern Syria. It's still effective against ISIS targets. It's effective against defending against cruise missiles and UAVs, threats that they face over there in the Middle East. And so, again, air power is in demand globally, and it's not going away. So what's the answer? In my report, I talk a lot about the next version of the F-35, what the service highlights as TR-3 and Block 4, which are the next tranche of technical upgrades that are going to really boost the capability of the system. But they've been reluctant to build up F-35 production capacity until they hit that mark. And right now, though, it is coming across the finish line. So do we scale it now or do we hold off longer? What's the answer, guys? It's simple. By the fighters that the nation needs. Like Gus said, this isn't just an Air Force problem. It underpins all joint force operations. We also need to pay attention to the pilot and maintainer shortfalls. 2,000 pilots short, 4,000 maintainers short. Because you can't have air power without the people. The Air Force desperately needs to define and design an objective force. The Air Force that the nation needs. And a force sizing methodology that accurately and honestly states the quantities of people, planes, and spacecraft necessary to match the demands of the national security strategy. That then would help the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Congress, and the American people actually understand the size of the Air Force's capacity shortfall, and if not funded to correct, the degree of risk that the nation's accepting. General Gostello, any thoughts? I think General Deptula hit that one perfectly. Cool. Sledge Laser, where do you see the hill coming down on this? I don't see larger defense budgets coming through. Obviously, there's concern, but the answer is how do we mitigate more threats? How do you mitigate the threats? And without an increase in budget, without reprioritizing, I just see Congress continuing to basically peanut butter spread the funding across the board, which only gets us less assets at increased costs and increased risks. So unless we see a drastic change in the budget and a prioritization, I don't see anything getting better in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think part of the problem is Congress does not fully understand the problem. I really think there's two problems in this. Back to what something General Deptula said a minute ago. This, And this, for the Department of the Air Force, is a force presentation problem. What is an air power? When the other services go to the Hill, they have their brigade combat teams, they have carrier task force, surface action groups, MUS, MEFs. It's something that you can intellectually get your arms around and figure out this is how we need to resource the force presentation models of their service. And I know that General Brown and the Secretary are working on this, and the A3, General Slife, is working on this, and hopefully that'll come out. Something makes it easier for the Congress to understand how the United States Air Force presents forces to the combatant commanders and then can show how under-resourced we are. The other problem is a constituency problem. 
very few members of Congress have served in the Air Force or the Space Force compared to the other services. So they have a, I think, a cultural bias there. Nothing wrong with that. We need more airmen to serve on Capitol Hill, more guardians to serve on Capitol Hill. But I think a larger problem for the U.S. Air Force is over the course of the last 40 years, we've decreased our size and our footprint across the United States. There are fewer bases and those that remain are in remote parts of the country. So we don't have that natural constituency. And with without having an aircraft carrier or a submarine that creates a lot of jobs, it's really hard for members of Congress to jump on board and advocate for air power. And I think we need to address those problems. Now, those are excellent points. And that foresizing thing, I mean, has been a huge priority of Mitchell for a long time, General Deptula personally. So, gentlemen, there's there are two big issues that came out this year that were pretty dramatic with the Air Force budget, and that was killing KCY effectively, the next tranche of tankers, and then down-selecting on the new engine for F-35 and sticking with the upgraded version of the F-135 versus going for the newly upgraded AETP, which is not just an upgrade, it's a fundamentally new engine. How do we expect this to play? As far as the tanker's concerned, Doug, that Air Force was looking at a new competition to consider a new aircraft type after the initial KC-46 buy was completed. Boeing was going to rebid the KC-46, and Lockheed Martin was offering a derivative of the Airbus A330 called LMXT. First and foremost, it's obvious that the Air Force needs more tanker capacity. KC-135s were built in the 1950s and 60s, and they're simply worn hard and worn out. KC-10s are already slated for total retirement. On top of that, we need to remember that the KC-46 was built to address a set of requirements that are over a decade old. Things like JADC-2 didn't exist back then, nor were we as Pacific-focused as we are today. Now, bombers we're not going to be as big a part of the force as they'll likely end up being. So it made sense that we considered a fresh assessment. And let's not forget, no matter who would have won that contest, competition would have driven a better deal for the U.S. taxpayer. And what the Air Force wants to do now is sole source a reduced buy of 75 tankers to Boeing for more KC-46s. Maybe this is the right answer, but the lack of a competition is going to risk fiscal challenges getting the best price. Boeing lost a ton of money, maybe multiple tons, on the first wave of KC-46s, and will need to make up that money. And that's a scenario where options and competition may have been prudent. As far as the engine's concerned, the F-35 needs an improved engine to support greater capabilities. The Block 4 F-35 version, as you just wrote about, is going to demand a lot more size, weight, power, and less cost, or swap C. The current engine can't meet those demands, so there are two paths. Go with an upgraded version of the F-135, which can probably meet those basic requirements, or go with a new system called Adaptive Engine Transition Program, or AETP, that uses bypass airflow and some other technologies to significantly improve the power and efficiency of the engine. This would have met swap C requirements, plus added more range and endurance for the F-35, but it came at a higher cost, and now you've got a multi-configured engine force, and so the Air Force decided to take the more conservative path. It was a hard call, and the Secretary of the Air Force has said as much. Any other thoughts from the team? 
I'll oh. just say on the engine, a multi-engine force for a single-engine fighter is a good thing. We saw that in the F-16. Matter of fact, if the GE hadn't come out with, as an alternative to the Pratt engine in the F-16, you know, it's quite possible we'd be flying around with the aircraft of any of who've flown it. The underpowered Block 42 was decertified for combat because there was no competition and the engines weren't performing. And sure enough, we had aircraft that couldn't do the mission. We're going to run into that same problem with the F-35 unless we drive competition into the engine regime because it, it drives down cost. It increases maintainability and reliability, which is important when you have one engine, not to mention the advantages in range and power that it's going to provide us. So I think it's a difficult bill to swallow initially, but the long-term lessons of not driving competition in the engine regime are out there. We need to listen to those. Hey, Gus, let me just offer for our audience that there's another great decision that Secretary Bob Gates made when he terminated the engine competition back during his tenure. Again, that rakes up there with the the ludicrousness of his decision to terminate F-22. I'm sure I haven't been up there at the time. It wasn't, it's what we're facing right now. Where are you going to get the other billion dollars? What programs do you want me to cut to go ahead and fund it? I think that people understand competition is good, but when you get to the point of, listen, I'm already constrained on my budget and now, and again, we've been, we were actually funding it for a couple of years but we hit sequestration and the decision had to be made that we didn't have the funding to continue going. And, I, and again, I understand the tough decision by Kendall. Again, we should have been upgrading this engine all along, but the fact that we're going to, we are going to upgrade it is a good thing. But did we have the extra billion plus that it was going to cost to get this new engine going? That was his decision. Yeah, no, I got that laser, but here's a place where you can take it from. You could give up 10 hypersonic conventional prompt strike rounds and get your money to accelerate or incorporate this engine that would dramatically increase the effects for the Department of Defense. That's the problem with this Department of Defense. They're not making decisions on the basis of what's best for the warfighters. They're making decisions on the basis of equity of spending amongst the services. That's a bankrupt approach, and it's going to get us in a position where we're going to end up losing the next major regional conflict. I want to thank everybody for their time today. It has been a great conversation and so many issues to, to hit, but when it's budget release time, there's a lot to go through. So General Daptula, General Agostella, Laser, Sledge, Tim, it's been awesome catching up. Thank you. You bet. Have a great aerospace power counter day, Doug. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Doug. Thanks a lot. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to our Space Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.